Well, welcome again to another podcast, Down to Earth, but Heavenly Minded. I'm your host, Irv Risch. And as we move forward, we're going to be going through the entire New Testament. Uh, and with that, we're going to do a commentary afterwards. And uh, with that said, let us just move on to our next section. And thank you for joining me. Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Romans chapter 5. F of the practical benefits of the gospel, 5 verses 1 to 11. The apostle carries his case for justification forward another step by taking up the question, what are the benefits of justification in the believer's life? In other words, does it really work? His answer is a resounding yes, as he enumerates seven major blessings that every believer possesses. These blessings flow to the believer through Christ. He is the mediator between God and man, and all God's gifts are channeled through him. 5 verse 1, The first great benefit enjoyed by those of us who have been justified by faith is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. Hostilities have ceased. Through the work of Christ all causes of enmity between our souls and God have been removed. We have been changed from foes to friends by a miracle of grace. 5 verse 2, Also we enjoy access into an indescribable position of favor with God. We are accepted in the Beloved One, therefore we are as near and dear to God as His own Beloved Son. The Father extends the golden scepter to us and welcomes us as sons, not strangers. This grace, or standing in favor, embraces every aspect of our position before God, a position that is as perfect and permanent as Christ's because we are in Him. As if that were not enough, we also rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This means that we joyfully look forward to the time when we will not only gaze on the splendor of God, but will ourselves be manifested in glory. See John 17 verse 22, Colossians 3 verse 4. We cannot comprehend the full significance of that hope here on earth, nor will we get over the wonder of it through all eternity. 5 verse 3, the fourth blessing that flows from justification is that we also glory in tribulations not so much in their present discomforts as in their eventual results. See Hebrews 12 verse 11. It is one of the delightful paradoxes of the Christian faith that joy can coexist with affliction. The opposite of joy is sin, not suffering. One of the byproducts of tribulation is that it produces perseverance or steadfastness. We could never develop perseverance if our lives were trouble-free. 5 verse 4, Paul now goes on to explain that perseverance works character. When God sees us bearing up under our trials and looking to Him to work out His purposes through them, he awards us His good endurance seal of approval. We have been tested and approved. And this sense of His approval fills us with hope. We know He is working in our lives, developing our character. This gives us confidence that, having begun a good work in us, He will see it through to completion, Philippians 1 6. 5 verse 5, Hope does not disappoint. If we were to hope for something but then later find that we were never going to get it, our hope would be put to shame or disappointed. But the hope of our salvation will never be put to shame. We will never be disappointed or find that we have rested on a false confidence. How can we be so sure? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. The love of God could mean either our love for God or His love for us. Here it means the latter because verses 6-20 to rehearse some of the great proofs of God's love for us. The Holy Spirit, given to us the moment we believe, floods our hearts with these expressions of God's eternal love, and by these we are assured that He will see us safely home to heaven. After you receive the Spirit, you will sense that God loves you. This is not a vague, mystical feeling that somebody up there cares about humanity, but the deep-seated conviction that a personal God really loves you as an individual. 5 verse 6, in verses 6 to 20, Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. 
His logic is that if God's love went out to us when we were his ungodly enemies, will he not much more preserve us now that we belong to him? This brings us to the fifth benefit of our justification, we are eternally secure in Christ. In developing this theme, the Apostle introduces five much mores. The much more of deliverance from wrath, 5 verse 9. The much more of preservation by his resurrection life, 5 verse 10. The much more of the gift of grace, 5 verse 15. The much more of the believer's reign in life, 5 verse 17. The much more of abounding grace, 5 verse 20. In verses 6, 7, and 8 Paul emphasizes what we were, without strength, ungodly, sinners, when Christ died for us. In verses 9 and 10 he emphasizes what we are now, justified by Christ's blood, reconciled by his death, and the resulting certainty of what the Savior will do for us, deliver us from wrath, preserve us by his life. First we are reminded that we were weak, helpless, without strength, and unable to save ourselves. But at the predetermined time, the Lord Jesus Christ visited our planet and died for men. And he did not die for good men, as some might suppose, but for the ungodly. There was no virtue, no excellence in us to commend us to God. We were utterly unworthy, but Christ died for us anyway. 5 verse 7, this act of divine love was unique and unparalleled by anything in human experience. The average man's life is precious to him, and he would not think of throwing it away for an unworthy person. For example, he would not die for a murderer, an adulterer, or a mobster. In fact, he would be reluctant to die even for a righteous man, one who is honest and dependable but not especially warm-hearted. It is possible, in an extreme case, that he would die for a good man, meaning one who is kind, friendly, loving, and lovable. 5 verse 8 the love of God is completely supernatural and otherworldly. He demonstrated His marvelous love toward us by sending His beloved Son to die for us while we were still sinners. If we ask why He did it, we must look for the answer in the sovereign will of God Himself. There was no good in us to call forth such love. 5 verse 9, Now a new set of conditions exists. We are no longer reckoned as guilty sinners. At the enormous cost of the Savior's blood, shed for us a Calvary, we have been counted righteous by God. Since he went to such tremendous cost to justify us when we were sinners, will he not much more save us from wrath through Christ? If he has already paid the greatest price to bring us into his favor, is it likely that he would allow us to perish in the end? Saved from wrath could mean either saved out of wrath or delivered from any contact with wrath. Here we believe the preposition, Greek. Apo means the latter, saved away from any contact with the wrath of God, either in time or in eternity. 5 verse 10, going back to what we were and what we now are, think of it this way. It was when we were enemies that we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We were hostile toward the Lord and quite content to have it so. Left to ourselves, we felt no need of being reconciled to Him. Think of it enemies of God. God did not share our attitude in the matter. He intervened in a display of pure grace. The substitutionary death of Christ removed the cause of our hostility toward God, namely, our sins. By faith in Christ we have been reconciled to God. If God purchased our reconciliation so dearly, will He ever let us go? If we were reconciled through the death of His Son, which is a symbol of utter weakness, Shall we not be preserved to the end by the present life of Christ at the right hand of God, a life of infinite power? 
if his death had such power to save us, how much more will his life have power to keep us? 5 verse 11, And now we come to the sixth benefit of justification, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We not only rejoice in his gifts but in the giver himself. Before we were saved we found our joys elsewhere. Now we exult whenever we remember him, and are sad only when we forget him. What has produced this marvelous change, so that we can now be glad in God? It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like all our other blessings, this joy comes to us through him. The seventh benefit enjoyed by the justified is found in the words we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation refers to the establishment of harmony between God and man through the sacrificial work of the Savior. The entrance of sin had brought estrangement, alienation, and enmity between man and God. By putting away sin, which had caused the alienation, the Lord Jesus restored those who believe on him to a state of harmony with God. We should note, in passing, that God did not need to be reconciled. It was man who needed it, because he was at enmity with God. G. The Triumph of Christ's Work Over Adam's Sin, 5 verses 12 to 21. 5 verse 12, the rest of chapter 5 serves as a bridge between the first part of the letter and the next three chapters. It is linked with the first part by picking up the subjects of condemnation through Adam and justification through Christ, and by showing that the work of Christ far outweighs in blessing what the work of Adam did in misery and loss. It is linked with chapters 6 to 8 by moving from justification to sanctification, and from acts of sin to the sin in human nature. Adam is portrayed in these verses as the federal head or representative of all those who are in the old creation. Christ is presented as the federal head of all those who are in the new creation. A federal head acts for all those who are under him. For example, when the president of a country signs a bill into law, he is acting for all the citizens of that country. That is what happened in Adam's case. As a result of his sin, human death entered the world. Death became the common lot of all Adam's descendants because they had all sinned in him. It is true that they all committed individual acts of sin as well, but that is not the thought here. Paul's point is that Adam's sin was a representative act, and all his posterity are reckoned as having sinned in him. Someone might object that it was Eve and not Adam who committed the first sin on earth. That is true, but since Adam was the first to be created, headship was given to him. So he is seen as acting for all his descendants. When the Apostle Paul says here that death spread to all men, he is referring to physical death, even though Adam's sin brought spiritual death as well. Verses 13 and 14 show that physical death is in view. When we come to this passage of Scripture, certain questions inevitably arise. Is it fair that Adam's posterity should be constituted sinners just because he sinned? Does God condemn men for being born sinners or only for those sins which they have actually committed? If men are born with a sinful nature, and if they therefore sin because they are born sinners, how can God hold them responsible for what they do? Bible scholars have wrestled with these and a host of similar problems and have come up with a surprising variety of conclusions. However, there are certain facts that we can be sure of. First, the Bible does teach that all men are sinners, both by nature and by practice. Everyone born of human parents inherits Adam's sin, and also sins by his own deliberate choice. Second, we know that the wages of sin is death, both physical death and eternal separation from God. But no one has to pay the penalty of sin unless he wants to. 
This is the important point. At enormous cost, God sent His Son to die as a substitute for sinners. Salvation from sin and its wages is offered as a free gift through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is condemned on three grounds, he has a sinful nature, Adam's sin is imputed to him, and he is a sinner by practice. But his crowning guilt is his rejection of the provision which God has made for his salvation, John 3 verses 18 and 19, 36. But someone will ask, what about those who have never heard the gospel? This question is answered in part, at least, in chapter 1. Beyond that we can rest in the assurance that the judge of all the earth will do right, Genesis 18 verse 25. He will never act unjustly or unfairly. All his decisions are based on equity and righteousness. Although certain situations pose problems to our dim sight, they are not problems to him. When the last case has been heard and the doors of the courtroom swing shut, no one will have a legitimate basis for appealing the verdict. 5 verse 13, Paul will now demonstrate that Adam's sin affected the whole race. He first points out that sin was in the world during the period from Adam to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But during that time there was no clearly revealed law of God. Adam had received a clear oral commandment from the Lord, and many centuries later the Ten Commandments were a distinct written revelation of divine law. But in the intervening period men did not have a legal code from God. Therefore, although there was sin during that time, there was no transgression, because transgression is the violation of a no law. But sin is not imputed as transgression when there is no law forbidding it. 5 verse 14, Yet death did not take a holiday during the age when there was no law. With the single exception of Enoch, death held sway over all mankind. You could not say that these people died because they had transgressed a clear command of God, as Adam did. Why then did they die? The answer is implied, they died because they had sinned in Adam. If this seems unfair, remember that this has nothing to do with salvation. All those who put their faith in the Lord were saved eternally. But they died physically just the same, and the reason they died was because of the sin of their federal head, Adam. In his role as federal head, Adam was a type, symbol, of him who was to come, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the succeeding verses Paul will develop the subject of these two federal heads, but more by contrast than by similarities. He will show that. In Christ the sons of Adam boast. More blessings than their father lost. 5 verse 15, the first contrast is between the offense of Adam and the free gift of Christ. By the trespass of the first man, the many died. The many here refers, of course, to Adam's descendants. Death here may include spiritual as well as physical death. The free gift abounds much more to the many. The free gift is the marvelous manifestation of the grace of God abounding to a race of sinners. It is made possible by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It was amazing grace on his part to die for his rebellious creatures. Through his sacrificial death, the gift of eternal life is offered to the many. The two manys in this verse do not refer to the same people. The first many includes all who became subject to death as a result of Adam's trespass. The second many means all who become members of the new creation, of which Christ is the federal head. It includes only those to whom God's grace has abounded, that is, true believers. While God's mercy is showered on all, His grace is appropriated only by those who trust the Savior.
5 verse 16, there is another important contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's gift. The one offense of Adam brought inevitable judgment, and the verdict was condemned. The free gift of Christ, on the other hand, dealt effectively with many offenses, not just one, and resulted in the verdict acquitted. Paul highlights the differences between Adam's sin and Christ's gift, between the terrible havoc wrought by one sin and the tremendous deliverance wrought from many sins, and finally between the verdict of condemnation and the verdict of justification. 5 verse 17, By the one man's offense, death reigned as a cruel tyrant. But by the gracious gift of righteousness, a gift of overflowing grace, all believers reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. What grace this is! We are not only delivered from death's reign as a tyrant over us, but we reign as kings, enjoying life now and eternally. Do we really understand and appreciate this? Do we live as the royalty of heaven, or do we grovel among the muck heaps of this world? 5 verse 18, The offense of Adam brought condemnation to all men, but the righteous act of Christ brought justification of life to all. The righteous act was not the Savior's life or his keeping of the law, but rather his substitutionary death on Calvary. This is what brought justification of life, that is, the justification that results in life and brought it to all men. The two alls in this verse do not refer to the same people. The first all means all who are in Adam. The second all means all who are in Christ. This is clear from the words in the preceding verse, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The gift must be received by faith. Only those who trust the Lord receive justification of life. 5 verse 19, Just as by Adam's disobedience to God's command, many were made sinners, so also by Christ's obedience to the Father, many who trust Him are declared righteous. Christ's obedience led Him to the cross as our sin-bearer. It is futile for universalists to use these verses to try to prove that all men will eventually be saved. The passage deals with two federal headships, and it is clear that just as Adam's sin affects those who are in him, so Christ's righteous act benefits only those who are in him. 5 verse 20, what Paul has been saying would come as a jolt to the Jewish objector who felt that everything revolved around the law. Now this objector learns that sin and salvation centered not in the law but in two federal heads. That being the case, he might be tempted to ask, why then was the law given? The apostle answers, the law entered that the offense might abound. It did not originate sin, but it revealed sin as an offense against God. It did not save from sin but revealed sin in all its awful character. But God's grace proves to be greater than all man's sin. Where sin abounded, God's grace at Calvary abounded much more. 5 verse 21, Now that the reign of sin, inflicting death on all men, has been ended, grace reigns through righteousness, giving eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that grace reigns through righteousness. All the demands of God's holiness have been met, and the penalty of the law has been paid, so God can now grant eternal life to all who come pleading the merits of Christ, their substitute. Perhaps we have in these verses a partial answer to the familiar question, why did God allow sin to enter the world? The answer is that God has received more glory and man has received more blessings through Christ's sacrifice than if sin had never entered. We are better off in Christ than we ever could have been in an unfallen Adam. If Adam had never sinned, he would have enjoyed continued life on earth in the Garden of Eden. But he had no prospect of becoming a redeemed child of God, an heir of God, or a joint heir with Jesus Christ. 
he had no promise of a home in heaven or of being with Christ and like him forever. These blessings come only through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, this ends another one of our podcasts. And until uh, next time, just remember, God is out here. And you can find out all about him in your Bibles. All you have to do is pick it up and read it. I have mine right here. And uh, God is in this Bible. So please read it. With that said, bye for now. Till next time.